Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good evening. Let me invite you to take your Bibles if you brought a copy of the Scriptures with you. Open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. Luke 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 25. I know that's in the middle of a chapter, but we're going to pick up in verse 25 and uh, deal with this story, if you will, of the Good Samaritan tonight. And uh, you may be thinking, I've heard that story a million times. I know, and doesn't it get newer every time you look at it? Well, it did for me. I told you this morning that if you came back, I'd share with you just kind of how God's speaking into my heart. And, and that's kind of a theme on what we're doing on Sunday nights is uh, uh, right now I'm not working through a particular subject matter or anything, but just kind of how God's stirring in my heart about subjects as we wrestle those to the ground and try to understand them. Uh, then just kind of share with you out of the overflow of that to see uh, if God speaks into your heart in the same way. Two weeks ago when I gave you the update on the Southern Baptist Convention, and by the way, for those of you who sent notes of encouragement and thanks for that, thank you for uh, encouraging me in an area that I was uh, uh, a little bit, I won't say anxious, but uh, uh, I'd worked up a number of scenarios of how emails might look coming in on the backside of that thing. And, uh, uh, and it's been, your words of encouragement were great. I'm really appreciative of that. And uh, man, what, a, what the convention could look like if we could just duplicate that about 15 million across the board and, uh, and then just do that uh, as a convention, it would be incredible. Uh, it seems like we spend a lot of time as a convention sniping at one another and uh, tweeting at one another and arguing at one another. And that's part of what I want to talk with you about today. Um, some asked, uh, how, what was the, the big issue between the presidential candidates when you broke things down? What were really the dividing lines or the distinguishing characteristics? Well, for, for many of us, one of the dividing lines was two of the four candidates were denominational employees. In other words, they received their support from the cooperative program. Uh, one headed up the, the Godfather Seminary of the Southern Baptist Life and, uh, and Dr. Al Moeller, a man who I greatly respect um, and uh, have met and have walked through his library on a guided tour if I promise not to touch anything. And uh, which in preacher terms, that's kind of, bi that's a big deal. So anyway, I've been, I've been there and, uh, and man, I'd really a great deal of respect for him. But he's one of six seminary presidents supported by Southern Baptists across the board. So I thought, man, that, that guy shouldn't lead Southern Baptists. I really felt like um, it ought to be a pastor that would lead. The same thing for uh, the executive director treasurer in the Northwest. Uh, his was kind of the same way. When you get down to the two pastors, here was kind of the... Uh, the dividing mark, and it's where we're going to talk tonight. Um, one side was perceived to be too woke. One side was perceived to be too fundamental. One was too progressive. One was too backward. And, uh, and it really stemmed around the subject, the conversation point of social justice or social justice ministry. 
So that led me down to, I, I went down a rabbit hole, read two or three more books in, the, in that area over the last couple of weeks, and um, uh, just want to kind of bring out some of the fruits of that. And I want to try to draw a distinction between social justice ministry or social justice or what I think the Bible presents as ordinary neighboring. What does it look like to be a neighbor? And that's what I want to show you, and I want to kind of draw that distinction out. Let me introduce part of this this way. Webster's Dictionary defines a philosophical argument known as the straw man this way. It's, quote, a weak or imaginary opposition, such as an argument or an adversary, set up only to be easily refuted. So I'm going to use that term straw man, so I wanted to define it for you. It's an imaginary argument set up on purpose. It's intentionally erected by someone so that they can knock it down. That's the bottom line on it. So here's what that typically looks like. Person A comes out and says a position. Here's what I believe. Person B then exaggerates their position to such a, an extreme that it's very easy then to destroy that position, leaving the person listening to that to think, well, person B really has a wrong view of everything according to person A. The problem is, or excuse me, I got my A's and B's mixed up, but anyway, here's the problem. The one refuting the argument didn't really engage with the actual person they engaged with an idealistic mirage of what they said the person was and then brought them down. Now, I could give you a hundred different examples or you could just go back and watch Fox News, CNN, whatever uh, during the last election cycle. All you have to do is listen to a commentator, a pundit, sit down and identify uh, a, a candidate or a person on the opposite side of an issue, and they'll typically exaggerate their position, then talk about why that's such a ridiculous position and nobody thinking would ever hold that, and then by destroying that, they hope they destroy the candidate in the process. Here's the problem. That may work in the world. It's not supposed to work that way among the people of God. We're not supposed to be into philosophical uh, theory from the standpoint that we create straw men only to destroy them and take out the name of Christ at the same time. So what I want to deal with is I want to deal with this subject that's hot and in the news and in the topics. It's something a lot of people are talking about in social justice. How should I think of social justice? And I want to deal with it in contrast to the way Jesus talks about neighboring. Here's the argument as it kind of set out within our convention. One side said, hey, evangelism is down. And we're spending too much time focused on social concerns. And those people... It's important, by the way, if you're going to have this argument to divide people into these and those, them and us. Those people have abandoned the Great Commission and we, we are the standard bearers and will lead the charge back to the truth. We're going to deliver us from where we're headed down into this liberal idea. By the way, the other side just as guilty. They said those people want to preach for you to get saved and trust God but they only want to dunk you and drop you. They don't care that you're in pain or in fear or underpaid or marginalized. Therefore, they have no concern like Jesus would have for the condition of your life here and now. Can I tell you, both of those are extreme positions and they don't really represent, as far as I can tell, either position. They're straw men. 
So you have to move back and go, what's actually true? Here's, what, here's three things that are true about those arguments. First of all, each position presents some truth about themselves and about others. Both of, those t- both of those sides presented some truth, both about themselves and about others. Secondly, neither position, though claiming exclusive truth, owns the neighborhood exclusively. Both of them claim we're telling the absolute truth and neither one of them actually own it. And here's the third truth. Jesus does not call for an either or, but a both and when it comes to the subject. Jesus, now if he's going to be Lord, we have to listen to him. Jesus doesn't call for an either or, which is by the way, the arguments from those sides, but a both and. He calls for a both and. Now, I'm going to show you what I've been contemplating in these recent days here. This parable of the Good Samaritan, I want you to see how it relates to our faith. Remember, faith is acting out what we understand to be true. So I want us to look at the doctrine or the instruction. And then I want us to talk about how we live that out or live out what we believe as we look at that. We're in Luke 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. And let me invite you to stand with me, if you would, in honor of the Word of God. Luke 10, verse 25 from the New American Standard Bible. And a lawyer stood up. That's not why I had you stand up, by the way. But uh, anyway, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him for whatever more you spend. When I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The lawyer replied, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Pause. Father, I pray that even in these moments, you'd help us understand, Lord, what it is to be an ordinary neighbor in the world in which we live. Give us eyes to see, hands and feet that are quick to do, and be glorified in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. And uh, hey, if you'd like to follow along, I want to show you three things here. I want you to see with me three elements of the instructions on ordinary neighboring. And they're available to you on the outline that's on the app. Or you can simply text notes to the number on your screen and we'll send you a link to it. You can follow along as well. Three things I want you to see. Three elements. First of all, notice with me the question. This is the question that's presented in verse 25. It says, and a lawyer stood up And put him to the test saying, teacher, here's the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, when you break it down like that, you understand that there's a, there are eternal consequences that hang in the balance on the answer of this that are at the heart of what's going on in the lawyer's mind. In the, and we say lawyer, we're not talking about the guy that's there to help you if you have an insurance dispute. We're talking about the religious lawyer or the, the religious teacher, the scribe, the one who understood the Mosaic law better than anyone else in their culture and community. And he says, hey, what do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? life. Now, the scripture says that he, he asked that question in a way of testing Jesus. And I believe that's true. He probably did want to trip him up to some degree or to some degree wanted to show himself as a super wise guy and that not a wise guy, but a super wise comma guy and to show that Jesus wasn't as smart as he was. So in some sense, he probably wanted to assert domination over Jesus and in some sense to make Jesus look silly and tested him. But in another sense, there's always an element of truth in a question like that. Like maybe this guy's only 95% convinced that he's right with God or 90% or 99%. And maybe there was that longing within him that said, how can I know that I know that I know for sure that I'll inherit eternal life? So he poses the question to Jesus. He brings it to him. And then you'll notice in verses 26 and 27, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? He, he responds a question with a question. How does the law read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer, the religious scholar at that point, he gives a textbook answer. If I came to you and said, what's three times three? You could open your math textbook and flip over three times three equals nine. You give the textbook answer, whether you believed it or not. If you give the textbook answer, you know you're going to be right. You read the answer right out of the guide. And that's what this guy does as he speaks to Jesus. He actually gives him two verses from the Old Testament, from the Torah, as he responds to him. If you're taking notes and you're interested in that, jot down uh, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Here in the Shema, here in, in this, uh, this proclamation that every Jewish person would pronounce first thing in the morning at morning prayers, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They, this, was, this was near and dear to the heart of those in, in, uh, uh, from Israel, and they would have said this every day. So they immediately knew that. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19 and verse 18, which says, You'll not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but, here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here's the religious leader. He says, he says, let me help you see this and understand this. You've asked me a question. I'm going to give you a textbook answer. Here's another word for that. An orthodox answer. A right knowledge, a right teaching answer. That's what orthodox means. So there's three things I want you to note with that. First of all, orthodoxy is essential. Orthodoxy, it's important. If we're going to be Christ followers, our understanding of right teaching is absolutely essential. You cannot live out the Christ life without understanding what Christ has called us to live in our life. Orthodoxy is essential. The religious ru ruler already had the answers from his study of Scripture. He was orthodox. 
And after all, as an expert in the law, able to quote from memory directly from Leviticus and directly from Deuteronomy in answer to the question, he knew his stuff. Orthodoxy is essential. But secondly, orthopraxy is essential. Orthopraxy is essential. What's orthodoxy is right teaching or right understanding. Orthopraxy is right practice or right actions. Right understanding is essential, but so are right actions. And Jesus deals with both of those. Jesus affirmed that this man's answers were correct, but simply knowing the right answer was insufficient. Just knowing the scriptures was not enough to give that man the peace he needed, nor to answer the question, nor to give him the eternal life that he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not enough to just know the right thing. We have to also do the right thing. That leads to a statement that's very similar to what I talked with you about this morning. True religion, therefore, is both acceptance and expression of truth. True religion is both acceptance of and expression of truth. James 1 verse 27, he speaks of it this way. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Go to Connect Group every single week and make sure you don't miss a sermon. In nope. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He said, pure and undefiled religion. If you want to know what it looks like to, to, uh, to love God, you've got to stay separated from the influences of the world. And at the same time, you've got to do as the hands and feet of Jesus. Orthopraxy. Our practice must line up with the instructions of God. Here's the third thing. When something is missing in either one of those, so is our peace. If something's missing in our orthodoxy, there's a, there's, a la there's a longing in our heart. Something's, something's amiss. We're firing on seven out of eight cylinders, but we can't get all eight. There's a skip. Maybe able to still pull a load, but we, we still got a little skip in our, in our we got a, here's how y'all say it here. And I'm about to start saying how we say it here. There's a hitch in our giddy up. Where did that ever come from? You can email me and tell me. I want to know. Because I've heard that a few times, but I never heard it till I moved to North Carolina. All right. When something's missing, so is our peace. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to the man, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself. In other words, ooh, if he was already justified, he already felt good about it. He wouldn't have gone any farther. He would have said, well, amen, let's take an offering and go home. We can go get some ice cream. He'd have been happy there, but he didn't. He said, but... Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The fact that he had a follow-on question tells us there's something missing in his life. There's peace that's missing. He may be 99% convinced. He may be 95% convinced. He may be 9.5% convinced. But there's something missing in his life. There's peace that's missing. He was looking for peace, and he had proper information, but not a peaceful existence. Here's what's true. Only God can give the peace we long for, and God has tied together both beliefs and actions as essential to a transformative or transforming faith. Jesus simply told him, hey, you know what you said, you know what you said you believe, 
do this and live is what he said in verse 28. Do this and you'll live. There's a tie together of what we believe and what we do that, listen, has always been connected. Anytime you see in the Christian faith or in the Baptist faith or in your church's practice or in your own personal life, if you see a way of separating what you believe from or what you know or what you think or what you're taught from what you do, if you see a divergence of those two things, you don't have a true biblical faith. Because what we do, the Christian faith is both a believing and a doing faith. It's a knowing and a doing faith. That's what believe actually means. There's a connection between the two. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, James, half-brother of Jesus, said that our actions must be in line with our words. James 2 and verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if, you, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? There has to be some outworking or action or activity or expression of our life that's in line with the things that we claim are true. Otherwise, what we claim is true isn't actually true to us. Perhaps you have information, but not the joy of transformation. Well, what's missing then? According to the command of Jesus, it's execution. We must have orthodoxy and we must have ortho. Praxy. That's the question. Notice not just the question though, notice secondly the example. Jesus then goes into a story, and I like stories. Stories work well for me. He goes immediately into a story in verse 30. Jesus replied and said to him, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this road between Jericho and Jerusalem that this man was on was a well-renowned road, 17 miles long, some 3,300 feet in elevation, and it was a descending road. It was perfect for ambushes or lying in wait and taking advantage of travelers that were coming through ill-prepared. It was a great place for you to jump on top of someone and take their stuff. It would be like you and I walking through a dark alley in a big street with, a, with shirt selling that says, hi, I'm a tourist and I don't know anyone or anything. Well, you're an easy mark. Somebody's taking your wallet. You might as well hold it out for them. You might not get beat up while you do it. That's what's going on here. If you made this road from, from Jericho down to, or from Jerusalem down to Jericho, if you made that trip, oftentimes you were an easy target. You were, you were going to get thugged. Somebody was going to wear you out. It was about to happen. And it was a common enough travel route that Jesus said, this is a great illustration. I don't have to explain it to you like I just did. I don't have to explain it to you. You already know all about this road, so you understand that it's really a dangerous road. It's the kind of road that if you were driving your motorcycle, you would have rolled up the windows and locked the doors. You would have made sure there's no way you were going to stop anywhere along the way. You would have been kept going. Some of you are still thinking about that. That's okay. Don't worry about it. It, it was a dad joke. It was a difficult and dangerous road. Jesus continues, verse 31 and 32. By chance, imagine that, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, the man who had been uh, thugged, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, 
It's interesting that Jesus would choose a priest and a Levite, if you think about it for just a moment. In the story that he's creating here, in his expression, he said, let me give you the two most religious practitioners that you can think of, the guy who preaches and the guy who leads music. And we're going to let the two of them, we're going to let the two of them be the foils in our story. We're going to use them and say, if anybody should know how to do the right thing, it ought to be these two guys. And yet, when they happened upon the man, they saw his condition. They were fully aware of it. They saw that he was beaten. They saw that he had been stripped of his clothing, that he had been left half dead, and that he was in desperate need. They were aware of his condition, yet they ignored the need intentionally by passing by on the other side. They saw it. They said, bless his heart. Let's go over here so we don't get any on us. And they went this way. Now you say, nah, there's no preachers in the world that would do that. You've probably never pulled up to 64 and uh, Winstead. Rolled your window up and looked straight ahead. You said, well, that fella doesn't deserve anything. I'm telling you, he's a, that, that, all those things aside, you get the point, right? You probably never heard anybody who had a need and then you said, bless her heart. I'm going to pray for him as I keep rolling. Jody and I were out to eat in Raleigh a couple weeks ago and we were coming home. And uh, we're coming up uh, the road the mall's on. Glenwood? So we're coming up the, that road, whatever it was. If it's Glenwood, y'all just be impressed. So anyway, we're coming up that road, and uh, I see a car on the side of the road. And I'm in my fancy clothes. It wasn't an Applebee's dinner. This was a nice dinner. So I'm in my fancy clothes. And, uh, and we're coming by, and there's a car on the side of the road. And there's these two girls that could have been my teenage daughters if I had teenage daughters. And they're standing there, and they're, lo they're looking in the trunk. And I'm thinking, they're after a spare tire. Well, I'm about 150 yards from the on-ramp to Rocky Mount. And if I'd just been on my phone or I'd been on the radio or I'd been on anything else, I could have just cruised right on by. But I thought, man, I can't just cruise on by. And uh, so here's what we did. We stopped and I changed the tire in 2.8 seconds. I'm telling you, I'm better than a NASCAR driver. I just, I just, you need me on your pit crew. And, uh, and, and. And they didn't even freak out and mace me because, I mean, what happens if somebody stops to help you? I mean, you're thinking, I'm going to shoot them or something. Anyway, but it was a good experience, and, uh, and I think Jody softened it up. When they saw me, they were like, we could, we could take this fella. They saw her, they're like, never mind. And anyway, so that's how that deal went. I got to change a tire with somebody. Why? Because it would have been weird for me to have gone to the other lane and gotten around them and go around. But we do that often, I think at least in different contexts. And yet Jesus says, as he sets out the story, he says, if you do that, that's not the way I designed you. Because if a priest and Levite did that, you'd go, ooh, that's wrong of them. Yep, us, it's wrong of us. He at least gives the impression here. So then he contrasts that story. Now, why would they, why would the priests and Levite, what would be their excuses? I mean, if you caught them for a man on the street interview at that point, put a camera in front of them and a microphone in front of them, and you said, hey, why did you do that? What would that might they say? They might say, well, I was, we, were, we were just doing our work in Jerusalem. We're absolutely exhausted. I got a 911 text from my wife. I got to go get formula for the baby. We're, we've got to go right now. We're in such a, we've been, we've been working for a week solid. We just, whew, 
I would have loved to have stopped if circumstances been. They might have used that story. They might have said, well, you know, that road's a really dangerous road. And somebody could have just left that man out there as bait to get us stopped. By the way, that's how ambushes work. You, uh, you act like you've got a flat tire somewhere hoping somebody stops so you can rob them. You lay in the ditch and you put some red ketchup all over you and you wait for somebody to stop so that your partner can jump out of the bushes and, as a boogeyman and rob them. So that might have been their excuse. They might have said, well, well, we just didn't want to bother. That would have been about honest. Or they might have said, well, if we had touched this man, he looked dead to us. That would have made us ceremonially unclean. By the way, scholars, when they've explored that, they've said, They'd have been coming back from Jerusalem. That wouldn't have even mattered. But you may find some smart guy who tells you that well, they, they were just trying to maintain their ceremonial cleanliness and that's why they couldn't stop and help them. Hogwash, that's the word for it in the Greek. That's not a true statement. Here's the deal, they just didn't want to. In my opinion, no one was around to see them ignore the man and they didn't know him so they decided to simply move on. Jesus contrasts this made-up story with another made-up part of the story, Luke 10, verse 33 to 35. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, and bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast. He let him in the front seat and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two days' wages, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, first of all, that he contrasts the priest and Levite with a Samaritan. To the Jewish audience that he's talking to, they would have said, Whew. let's give it a different way of thinking of it today. Um, the pastor and a gang member. That might be a way of thinking of that. Or it would, have been, it would have been somebody that you would have thought, well, surely they'll get involved. And somebody you would have thought, they don't care about anybody but themselves. You put the names and faces, the occupations, or the, 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 the way they live their life, you fill in the blanks. But he's drawing a complete opposite picture on purpose because he's trying to draw a contrast and say, the Samaritan acted more like a Christian than the priest did. And he wants us to see that. A Samaritan was a mixed race uh, individual and uh, from the northern kingdom, a compromised uh, person according to the Jewish believers uh, who would be orthodox. And while they would have, um, while they would have compromised genuine worship in Samaria, uh, being Samaritans, they would have worshiped somewhere other than Jerusalem, that Jesus positions this guy as, a, as the total opposite of the priest. But what else we know about him? First of all, he personally identified with him. Personally, he connected with this guy. Why? Well, he also was a marginalized person. He realized that his own low estate and, and because of that, he didn't respond with pridefulness but compassion. He was personally invested in this guy. He stopped to help him. He put him on his own beast. He uh, cared for him by bandaging his wounds. Uh, he uh, ministered to him at the end. And then the next day, he paid for somebody to continue the job as he went on. He was personally invested in this guy's life. There's a picture of instruction for you and I. And... He put him up and cared for him in ways. Listen, his actions differed from the religious man intentionally. 
and his humanity provoked more compassion than the religious men's doctrine or their statement of faith provoked. His humanity provoked more compassion than, his, than their doctrine did. In the first church I pastored, one of the most powerful evangelists that we had, this has been 20 years ago now, most powerful evangelist I had in the congregation was a man who had done three to five for robbery. When he got out of prison, he was a changed dude. And let me tell you, you couldn't bring anybody in that he thought he was better than. And listen, he had less pride than most of my Sunday school teachers. Think about that for just a second. How in the world is that possible? Well, some folks get puffed up when the more they know. This guy, the more he realized, he said, oh, woe is me for I'm a sinner. And, and he got lower, not higher, not puffed up, but brought low the more he saw. Like the Samaritan, his humanity provoked compassion in a way that their doctrine should have but didn't. Now, remember the question, verse 29, wishing to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is questioned back to him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? I like it when Jesus makes us answer questions that we just simply ask him and he just waits. Teachers do that a lot. It's a teaching method. And Jesus did it masterfully. And it caused him to go, I guess that's Samaritan. He couldn't say Samaritan though, so he said the one that showed compassion. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Why did the Samaritan act differently? Well, how we view ourselves and others influences how we respond to the needs we see. If we see ourselves as, as, uh, as broken people who've been saved by a glorious God in order that we could help other broken people experience that same grace, that'll, that'll inform everything about how we live our lives. If we see ourselves as those that God was lucky to catch us on the first round because we might not have made it to the second or the third round of draft, well, then we act like God should be lucky to have us as opposed to us being so grateful for what God's done for us. D.T. Niles, a pastor and evangelist in what's now modern-day Sri Lanka, said this, quote, evangelism, that is communicating the gospel, is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. End quote. When you share, we're sharing the gospel, it's just one person who begged telling another guy who's begging where he found a sandwich. That's all there is to it. And by the way, that's kind of what the Samaritan was doing. Man, something, grateful, something great happened to me. I'm grateful for it. I want you to experience it as well. If we don't see ourselves rightly as men and women desperate for grace, we'll not become instruments of grace. Now, I got to move on, but now catch this. The story of a parable, a parable oftentimes ends in some kind of instruction or an application point. This one's no different. So notice not, uh, not the question or the example, but notice number three, the imperative. The imperative. Verse 37. Jesus said, or the man said to Jesus in response to the question, which one of these is a neighbor? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. 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 By the way, 
the grammar in that one is a second person singular imperative in the middle voice. So here's what that means. Can I just tell you so that you won't sit up all night going, what is the middle voice? I just can't wait to find out. I'm glad you asked. Let me help you. Here's what he said. He said, you, you yourself are instructed to do yourself these things. You yourself go and do likewise. Not you yourself go and form a committee which will do it. But you yourself go and do likewise. Not you yourself pray somebody takes care of it. But you yourself go and do likewise. You yourself go and do likewise. Do you see the imperative there and how it applies? Notice Jesus doesn't present what we must do to inherit eternal life as belief divorced from action. He defines it as belief as defined in Scripture as action informed by what we know. When Jesus answers the question, he does so by joining together, love God and love people into one command. Let me show it to you because this right here, if you're saying, well, what did you learn out of this, Chris? This is the big aha moment. So don't miss this. Okay, are you ready? Look at verses 27 and 28. And he answered, what, what should you do? You, what does the Bible say? He says, here's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now catch this word. And, by the way, that's the Greek word Kai. It's a standard conjunction, but that's what it means. Okay, and with all your soul, and Kai, with all your strength, and Kai, with all your mind, and Kai, your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what that means. Sometimes we may sit down and say, well, I do love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you? That's half of it. But you left off with conjunction. Well, I don't think that last chi means the same thing as the first three chi's. Well, then you don't understand the language. Because if chi means chi, in the end, it means chi all the other places where it showed up. If it means chi up here, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And if you want to, all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, those are optional. No, we would say that's obviously, that's exactly it. When this gets joined together in the scripture, he merges these two with the same construction, making, catch this now, those two verses into one command. One command. That would be disobeyed if we left off any single part of it. So think about it from this standpoint. Verse 37. Um, nope, that's not right. Why did y'all try to confuse me? Verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Forget the soul and strength. But with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It would be wrong. You shall love the Lord your God with, eh, don't worry about the heart part, that'll come. With all your soul and strength and mind and your neighbor. Nope, that'd be wrong. If you leave any one part out, all of it falls apart, including the last part. So, there are some who would argue, who would say, well, wait a minute. Chris, our eternal life depends simply on what we know in our mind. Interesting, but that's not what Jesus said. The, the lawyer said to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's he talking about? What must I do to be saved? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. 
All five of those phrases are connected to eternal life. Well, what if I don't love my neighbors myself? Well, then you don't have eternal life. Selah. Now let that sit for just a second. See, I grew up in one of the most conservative stripes of the Southern Baptist Convention. I went to one of the most conservative undergraduate programs. I believe the most conservative master's program through Mid-America. They were conservative when conservative was weird. And to Southern Seminary, which you'd be hard pressed to define that in anything other than conservative. I grew up in the, the, the preachers that I, that, that I talk to and hang out with are some of the most conservative under the sun. But now here's what some of them would say. Hey, listen, social gospel, that's not necessarily the big deal. We don't want to get distracted by, by doing. We want to get folks thinking right. Let me just help you with that. You can't get thinking right without doing right. And you can't do right unless you're thinking right. You can't divorce one from the other and end up with the right thing. All you get is wrong, no matter which part you let out. Now, what does that have to do with you and I today? What, do we think that God's placed us here without purpose? Has he entrusted us with the resources we have at the time he has, with the experiences in our lives that we have without some kind of plan? Or is God working intentionally in such a way so that we would inherit eternal life and express abundant life to others? Do you think it's just happenstance that we live in a community where seven out of ten people live daily without a discernible faith and far more live with the faulty faith? Do you think that's just coincidence? That any of you fishermen, just slip your hand up. It's confession time, are you? Now listen, if I offered you this, hey, let's go to my bathtub and fish or to my neighbor's stocked pond. Which one do you want to fish out of? You don't even know what my bathtub looks like and you're thinking, I bet he doesn't have a five-pound bath swimming around in there. You're going to the stocked pond. Why? Man, the more fish, the better. Do you, think it's a, do you think it's just happenstance and circumstance that we live in a place where seven out of ten people you meet are baths waiting to get caught? That's a terrible analogy. Nobody wants to get caught, but you get the idea, right? I mean, there's a lot of fish. And yet we might sit around and go, well, let's just talk about fishing instead of fishing. No, God stuck us here, put a fishing pole in our hand and told us to go fish. Well, what did he give us for bait? What did he give us to do? What did he give us to work with? Well, the gospel for one. Do you think it's any surprise that we live in a place where many, if not, if not most, a large percentage of the homes around us are broken homes? There, they may be testimonies where the parents are no longer married, or they may be testimonies like David this morning, who said, I grew up in a broken home. I was 49 before I understood the gospel. Can you imagine? 49. Or struggling homes that he put us around folks who were struggling to make it work. 
Do you think it's a surprise that we live in an angry, confrontational, and critical culture that that caught God by surprise or it's just circumstance? No. God said, listen, I want you to go sit in the circle of the most critical people you know, and I want you to be someone who's not critical. So they'll see Jesus. I want you to go and hang out with people who've got broken homes so that they can see what right homes look like. I want you to go with places where people don't have a clue and I want you to just express how Jesus gave you a clue. I want you to tell them Jesus wants them to have a clue on purpose. And we can't ignore it because and your neighbors as yourself is is just as forceful as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because Jesus made it into one command. So I know, here's what happens. Some folks say, well, I'm just not into the social justice side of things. I think that's just making people liberal. (laughs) Respectfully, you're crazy. Because you can't understand the Bible and take that position. You may be able to understand some angry preacher on the internet, but you can't understand the Bible. Because the Word of God is very clear. And it's easy for us to understand. Kai, 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 Kai. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Kai, all your strength. Kai, all your mind. Kai. And your neighbor is yourself. Kai. It's there. We can't ignore it. That means you and I have to be personally, actively, intentionally engaged with our neighbors, not as extraordinary actions that are worthy of like, gosh, Chris got out and changed a tire. Wow. But were that so normal that everybody does that? Because that's what ordinary neighboring is. It's not some movement worthy of a hashtag. It's just what neighbors do for one another. When God intentionally, mysteriously places us in a neighborhood with the hope of the gospel. Does that make sense? Now, that means, well, it's got, a, it's got a ton of different meanings, but you can't handle any more of that. So let me just say it this way. Let's do a Jesus thing. What does that mean to you? When you look at your life, are you that kind of neighbor? I mean, the neighbor that politely and kindly and genuinely steps in to get his hands into stuff and helps people because you have the gospel after all. Are you that neighbor? If you look at your life and say, I'm more the roll up the windows on my motorcycle and keep punching through and I'll throw some money at something, but I don't hardly ever get involved. Hey, listen, here's, here's what you do. Stop it. And start neighboring. Not as an extraordinary action, but as ordinary. Why? Because you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I don't know what God says to you. I just know how he talks to me. And I know what that means for how we as a people have to live our lives. But do you know what to do with that? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next 
or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.